Hi there, Dr. James K. Harris. Uh, hi, Dr. Nick Flores. How are, are you, you, friend? Before I answer that question, I just want to let <laughs> everyone know that you are listening to Learning on the Job, where two recentest PhDs of color uh, attempt to make sense of and navigate the world of higher education. We offer our unique perspectives on various items within higher education, ranging from things like tenure, diversity and inclusion, what, and, you know, how to make sure that we are not reproducing so many of the violences that are a part of higher education. Call it a learning experience. Uh, amen to that. Mm-hmm. Friend, I, 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 you're on spring break and that fills me with rage and fury uh, because we are not, we are so far from break. And it is the part of the semester where like, if you were a normal school, you would be on break now. So many normal schools are on break, but as I've mentioned before, the CUNY system is insanity. And so our spring break is always aligned with Easter. So we're like a month away from spring break. Yeah, that's wild. Especially, (sighs) I mean, you know, I don't know. Um, it's finally spring or feeling like spring here in the central Ohio, central Illinois area. Um, you know, it's sunny. There are buds on the trees and green things sprouting. So it very much feels like spring and the temperature is, is finally above 55 which, you know, it's basically summer at this point, given this most recent bout of winter that we've had here. So, you know, certainly um, I think that the jealousy and the rage is completely warranted and you're entitled to all of those feelings. However, I would just remind you that your time is coming too. And when it does, you know, remember that you've got some nice little things to look forward to that are not all reachful and and the like so um that sounded so convincing and i was convinced by it (laughs) well then my job is done (laughs) oh friend how are you how are you doing you know honestly um being on spring break is you know lovely wonderful however i am also playing catch up as i think most in our positions do which is you know I wish it wasn't the case but yeah I mean so I'm enjoying the time that I can outside to soak in some sun soak in some fresh air uh, or take in some fresh air but I'm also you know behind on some writing deadlines and that you know I don't know about you but you know that like the voice in the back of your head that's like you should be writing or girl you are fucking up because you shouldn't be having fun right now you need to like go do work right don't you want to keep your job right like so it's it's really difficult to ease and calm and quiet that voice (laughs) because you know like we're also humans and we're not meant to work all the time so you know in in that regard so real 
in that regard, it's like nice to be able to not have to worry about things like teaching and office hours, uh, though that has not stopped some of my students from reaching out to me. Um, you know, there are just things, right? I mean, there's like 500 moving parts, as you know. So it's just, you know, trying to make sense of them. I, I say this, I have a job, my bills are paid, my rent can be paid for. So it's like, you know, there's that. Perspective, it matters. But I mean, I, I definitely feel that I hear that. I mean, I think that spring break is sort of a microcosm of the problem that ends up being the same thing of summer of like, you spend the entire time trying to finally feel like you've done enough work that you can calm down and relax. And then by the time you get there, it's time to go back to work. Yeah. And honestly, I have a deadline, like a major deadline this summer, especially for my book. And so I I'm trying really not hard not to like let that overwhelm me. And it's hard, as you can imagine. Um, yeah. But what about you? How it's, are you? I <laughs> right there with you, friend. I'm right there with you. <laughs> um, it is my fourth year. And so next year is fifth year review, which in our world is like, mm, it's not a it's t- uh, promotion. So not mm-hmm. tenure, but like promotion, you can potentially become an associate. Uh, so it's possible that this time next year, I will be making people call me associate professor. Um, and so that's cool. That's exciting. I mean, you know, it's absolutely one of those, like you go into a meeting and they're like, so you're doing great. We just love to see you do more. And you're like, sure. Can you give me a list of what more is? I'm like, ah, just more. Right. Just like be more around, be more involved, be more. And so it's like, you know, I, like I mentioned this before that, like, I think I may have leaned very early into my career into being very comfortable saying no in order to sort of be defensive and protective of my time. And I've been really mm-hmm. trying to be strategic about saying yes, because I do think it's still the case that like, there is a point at which you become the person that says yes to everything and it doesn't do you any good and it makes everybody else's life a little mm-hmm. bit easier and yours much harder and you don't get rewarded for that right and so like mm-hmm. i don't want to do that i'm very leery of becoming that person but i do think that like you know it's that point where if you want this college to put its brand on you and keep you for good you need to start you know showing your face in all the places that they know who you are and they know what you do because so i've been doing some of that i've been like kicking around a bunch of different projects. I have signed up for, oh my God, like six or seven different versions of professional development, almost (laughs) all of them paid this summer. So we'll be working all summer, but I will be making tons of money doing just nonsense. So that's kind of fun. But I mean, it is like, I will be spending my summer on Canvas and Blackboard in between the different like online classes I'm signed up for. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it promises to be, I mean, alongside like, writing is such a weird thing in this is one of the things that like I keep trying to wrap my head around that I keep forgetting that is I think becoming a really real problem as I move towards trying to put this book projects together and Mm -hmm. let me just look talking through the pieces thinking them through out loud here's what I realized in my meeting with my chair Uh, and conversations I've had with other people before my meeting with my chair that like I'm not I'm not doing this smart uh, I thought that it would be really smart to hurry up and get a book done so that they have to keep me. And what I'm learning and realizing is that that's not actually smart uh, because mm. we have this weird system where like every step you make, every time you move forward, basically everything you've done is erased and it's like it never happened. Uh, and so like 
you don't actually in our department need a book to get to tenure. In fact, I'm pretty well positioned at this point. Like if you could turn out maybe one article from the thing you're working on as a book project, you will be well positioned to get at least promotion and then into mm -hmm. tenure from there. Uh, if you do the book, you will absolutely get tenure, but then you have to hit reset and do a whole other book before you can go up for full professor. Because what I'm learning yeah. strategically from the people in my department is like, oh no, don't publish the book until after, don't even get the contract until after after promotion because then you can't really use any of that stuff for like the next promotion mm -hmm. so now i'm in this weird holding pattern where i'm like i don't know making these editors sit around and wait for another year for a book it does need to happen but it can't happen now mm -hmm. you know thank you for sharing and i mean i agree that one of the learning experiences really and i mean i think that this is something that you know would benefit anyone listening who is either starting off or is thinking about a career in the professoriate and that is yeah I mean the strategy never ends and so I think what you're also highlighting here is a a difference I think amongst the institutions in the U.S. higher ed, higher ed education institutions in the U.S. because you know at a place like where you are you know, the, you're learning kind of internally and from colleagues. And to be sure, I really don't like that this isn't just like spelled out for us directly, right? Like oh I, have had to, I, I have had to like ask so many people, right? So where I am, a book is, is a guarantee for tenure, but it is also the kind of unspoken, you know, preference, especially for those in kind of humanitarian or the humanities or social science fields that I'm in, that the, the book is kind of expected with the handful of articles, right? So it's not just a book, but it's like, oh, also articles. And that's just to get the promotion and hopefully tenure uh, to associate. And most folks here at, you know, U of I are also writing, you know, to another book, you know, three books to then get to uh, another book, two total, I mean, to then get to full. Um, and so, you know, the, the requirements seem to me to differ depending on institution, right? And then if you're like at a primarily teaching institution with, you know, where, where, where it sounds like, yeah, like the requirements at those institutions or at, you know, are, are different. So I appreciate you sharing that because I'm, I'm reminded of the necessity of having to produce and not always having clarity around that. And then also just kind of moving along as if I, you know, for me, I am, it's a book and like, you know, four to six articles, right. Which I think is like a, is a guarantee for me. And I'm about halfway there. I think um, I still have like articles in the pipeline that I need to either send out or haven't heard back from yet. So there's, it's, it's wild. It's wild. Um, all of these requirements, but I think, you know, ultimately what I'm thinking I'm getting at in my very belabored long-winded way is, you know, learning the strategies once you're on the inside, right. I think is something that is vital, but also something that isn't always like spelled out or like kind of written down. And I think it's, you know, I think on the part of the institution it's strategic in that way. Right. Like, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a real benefit to the answer always being do more. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, like if they gave us a checklist, we would check off the checklist 
And then they would tell us that we weren't doing enough because we did everything they asked us to do. Uh, so by never asking us what specifically they want done, we can always just be doing in a way that I think like, you know, but then what I'm bumping up against is there is real strategy to the doing. There is a way to do stupidly. There are people in our department, in fact, who've done kind of stupidly and who end up feeling like I produced all this work that wasn't actually valued in the way I would have liked because it fell in this weird gap where it was basically useless to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and maybe that that's a part, you know, I think that also has to do with kind of maybe department cultures too, right? So I, another maybe difference here, though, I don't, I, though I wonder, as I'm going to talk it out with you about the, not only the specificities, but also like, you know, how department cultures operate. English departments are notoriously so very large right on any like on any campus they're the they're the they're the humanities disciplines that you know have the highest enrollments have typically the most faculty as well as kind of contingent or you know specialized faculty as we call them here um and in my department it's so small right that it, it was it's easy for me to bump into colleagues you know, virtually or otherwise, and kind of have the informal conversations about tenure requirements or promotion requirements in a way that if I was like in a much larger department, the types of mentorship or the types of, you know, guidance that you kind of get through this process seem to me at least more complicated, right? In a way that, you know, there's so few of us that one of the things that I'm consistently told here is that, you know, we want to see you succeed, right? It reflects best on on all of us when you succeed in a way that I'm not sure that is always the case in, you know, big departments like in English, right? Like if, if you don't get tenured, but you are among, you know, a ton of other people, right? Like it seems to me less noticeable or, you know, and I'm not saying that you are less noticeable, right? Whomever doesn't get tenure in like a place with the large department, but it seems like those, the, the culture around kind of mentorship and guidance and support may differ. And I could be completely wrong, but it seems to me like that, that is a case that's part of what's going on here too, right? Like, do you have a mentor? And I'm sure you're assigned a mentor, right? And how much does that mentor know? And um, I mean, at institutions where competition is the drive, you know? We're speaking in very big, abstract generalizations, not abstract, but like very big generalizations, certainly. Uh, But I do think there's something to your point. My sense of it is also just that like your department and like women's studies department and sort of African-American studies departments, right? Those departments politically sort of come from a place where like mentorship and building the scholarship community is an important investment in a way that like English studies isn't always made up of those people i mean not to say there aren't those people there certainly are those people but like i don't know my experience in a lot of english departments is that like that's not a requirement to be a participant in this department in the same way that like you kind of wouldn't get a job in one of those other places if those weren't your politics if that wasn't something you believed in so Mm -hmm. i do think it's for it's more likely that you could find like people who are here because they really enjoy the sort of like competitive cutthroat image of the academic as like lone wolf intellectual in a way that I think is less common in departments that have had to do more fighting to make them make create an institutional home for themselves. It becomes more important to preserve that home than to protect any individual ego. 
Um, that mm. said, I mean, I also just think like the bigness of any department like makes it difficult to communicate information in a way that is clear, concise, and universally applicable. Very because uh, I think like the the standards like, because an English department can be people who work in rhetoric and people who do pedagogy and people who did digital, digital media studies, right? It's like figuring out what the standard for tenure looks like is understandably challenging because in some departments it's like, well, publishing seven articles is no big deal because all of your articles are like three pages long. It's like if all we're doing is pedag, not at all. If one of the things you're focusing on is pedagogy articles, like my experience has been that those are easier to turn out because typically you're turning them out every semester based on the new experiments you're running. And the body of research you need is essentially one semester's experience that you're reporting back on. And so mm -hmm. like the figuring out of what it looks like to arrive at tenure as a goal seems like it needs to be disciplinarily specific in a way that is harder to wrap your head around when the discipline's as big as English. Just maybe the generous way of saying, of course they like to keep it a big secret. It, it's so we get to be the cool mystery discipline. At least that's the narrative you tell yourself, right? I mean, and that's we, does anyone call English cool? Um, I think English people maybe. Um, mm. I, that's a, I feel like that we're opening up a whole different maybe conversation. Um, that's fair. That's fair. All of which is just Let's, to say, so this yeah. is the part of the year where I find myself thinking like, yeah, I think I'm moving forward and I don't think that there will be any problems. And I wonder, I, I suspect the structure of problem is such that like nothing will arrive as an emergency from out of nowhere. Uh, so worst case scenario, I will just get more notes about more things to be doing and it will produce more work, which frankly, I'm quite good at doing. Yeah, and I mean, I know you don't need this and it's not certainly a requirement, but you got this. And I know you do. You are amazing. You, friend. Friend, I always will take it. And of course I need it. <laughs> um, shall, shall we, we check in with some, I, I just, I'm look, this won't take long. Cause like, I don't even know what to make of this. Uh, but we have a segment that is based ever so loosely off the good, the great Samuel Beckett, uh, who in Worsford Hill reminds us ever tried, ever failed, no matter try again, fail again, fail better. And, if I mean, there are a few things in the world that feel more like banging your head against a brick wall than working in higher education. Uh, but here we are failing better. And you know what? Hey, today there was a story about how the public's impression of higher education has just ever so slightly improved. Uh, and so diving in on the texture of this, and again, we'll obviously drop it in the show notes. Uh, but like the question they were asking is like over the past 20 years, right? Uh, do you think the value of an economic, the economic value of a college degree has increased, has remained the same, has decreased, or you don't know. Uh, and when they asked the question in July of 2018, a fair number of people said the value had decreased and not that many were saying increased. Uh, by February, there's still more people who think the value of a college degree, economic value of a college degree has decreased over the last 20 years than increased. However, the number of people in the increased column is going up. The messaging here seems to be moving in favor of people at least appreciating for better or worse, college might change your economic positioning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, branding, right? I think that that is what looms here in part, right? The perceived value of college is rising. And I, you know, I am a product, I think, very directly of not only the perception of college being advantageous, 
but also the reality, right? But also that's very exceptional. Um, so I think that's good. I think it's good for all of us, right? If, if all of us, you and I, those of us in higher ed maybe have, you know, a, a branding or, or, or rather something that brands us as useful, but also as, you know, potentially materially actually advantageous to people, then I think that that's, it, there are no complaints here, is what I'll say. Yep. I mean, look, I don't know that I'm enough of a romantic to be particularly invested in the liberal arts argument for like the only value of education. Like I think education for education's sake is great if that's something you believe in. But I often tell my students at a purely financial level, like whether we like it or not, it still remains the case that bachelor's degrees are economically bifurcating, right? One of the easiest Mm -hmm. ways to tell in your life how much money will you make is just to ask, well, do you have a college degree or not? And like it, it becomes a shorthand for so many kinds of cultural knowledge that obviously are problematic in their own ways and obviously deserve and demand unpacking. But I mean, I think that it's real. I have struggled endlessly with how the conversation around not everybody needs to go to college happened without taking on board that there are large groups of people who were always locked out of college educations. Uh, And without those, they've always been locked into the lowest paid, the lowest wage, the highest vulnerability and precarity jobs. And it seems like, yeah, no, not every middle class rich person who like comes from money and has parents who will let them take a gap year necessarily needs a four year degree to succeed. But if that's not your situation, you should probably get there to somebody's college that very that you know and I, I mean i guess on my end it's not that i am a total naively you know enthralled person with the kind of romanticism of higher education either but or rather and not a but and i have very direct instances encounters and experiences with it being my ticket out right um and like but i also caution against using my narrative and also my voice as a way to suggest that it get that you know it gets better i've only gotten certainly certainly right i mean there is debt to be had if you go into college without a real plan or a real stri- hell there's yet to be had if you do it perfectly right? right like it's i'm not saying there's nothing wrong with college but i do think that the idea that like there is if there is an argument to be made for college it is that it will probably improve your capacity for earning down the road that mm-hmm. seems salient that seems a little hard to refute especially if you make it to the other side especially right right i mean survivor's guilt to say the very least um, is something you may be dealing with, uh, as I do and have. <laughs> you don't I've been say. Here. Yeah. You I've might. You might. You might say we made a whole show about it. It's fine. <laughs> and we're doing fine, and we're getting through it. Call it a learning experience. <laughs> oh man, I'm glad uh, we get to laugh at ourselves. If nothing else. If nothing else, we have that to look forward to. We've, you know, in an, in an age where everybody hates school and teachers and we are apparently everything that's wrong with the world, at least the value perception of a college degree is going up. Hey, let what did, what did Oprah say to Lindsay Lohan? Well, hey, let's celebrate that. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. 
James, shall we take just an ever so quick break before we jump into the last part of the podcast? You know, I love a break. Let's do it. Let's do it. Back, 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 back again. Oh, friend. That's all you got for me. Fine. I get it. I get it. I I I know what's coming, so I'm sad. Oh, you're talking about us going into our segment, a little segment that we like to call disingenuous arguments, where in James and I, you know, take the time to unpack those various straw man arguments or those really, really bad faith arguments that always have and seem to get so much traction on the interwebs or in kind of conversation. And, you know, typically you see these headlines or you re- you hear about or read about these things and you think, oh my God, that is coded racism or that is coded sexism or that is coded classism or it's a combination of all of those things and you think of course that is and you don't really want to take the mental time or energy to deal with it but James and I will for you ergo our disingenuous argument segment segment and this week on the docket ah. we don't have just one you know particular item in mind we have a whole state in mind is that right i mean ugh, wow i it's just a it's just a it's a real swamp it is an actual swamp and we probably shouldn't have started putting hotels on it (laughs) or yeah among other things I, well, I, where are we talking? I couldn't figure talking? out where to start. It's yeah, a Florida I mean... check-in. It's the whole thing. <laughs> it's the whole state. I mean, because we could, I couldn't. Every, I kept finding more of them, and was like, "What about this one? What about what's the through line in all of them?" It's the Florida of it all. Uh, and so I guess we'll just start chronologically in terms of how they arrived at my door uh, mm-hmm. with the first of them, which is a story that comes to us from Miami, uh, where we learn that Florida's only Southern, Southern Florida's only historically black college and university, uh, FMU, which is, I don't know what that stands for, Florida Memorial University, uh, just laid off four tenured professors and discontinued 16 degree programs. Mm-hmm. So of course they're claiming that this is a budgeting concern. Uh, Sherry Gilbert, FMU's director of communications and marketing tells the New Times, the Miami New Times, that the decision to eliminate 18 positions, including staff, administrators, tenured and non-tenured faculty and vacant positions was not an easy one. 16 degree programs in the School of Arts and Sciences, Business and Education will also be continued, uh, discontinued, sorry. Uh, and so these are going to be programs including English, engineering, physics, mathematics, sociology, accounting, and marketing. Yes. What's left? Well, uh, well uh, to, to go further, right, amongst these faculty and staff being cut, right, having received notice 
last month in February 2022, uh, there are at least four tenured associate professors um, who are also being cut. And they're actually, they have legal representation currently. Um, and it is, you know, they're, they're literally, Florida is just coming for everyone with a degree. What's fun about sword. this one, um, what's fun about this one is that it's got a little whiff of age discrimination about it too, right? They're like, so mm-hmm. let's not lose the thread here of like all the people they're hiring are, or firing rather are older faculty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, further down, we learn that one of the faculty is suing, suing because he argues the positions were eliminated, quote, under the guise of program closures, but were discriminatory because his clients are all in their 50s or 60s, uh, including the 57-year-old a music professor who's been at FMU for 22 years and was told in February that he will no longer be working there as of May. As of May and 22 years. Well, you know, I, I think this is also a reminder that the institution, all of them do not have our backs, right? Um, and that even even over two decades of committed work, I'm sure this professor has many students uh, under his tutelage that have you know gone on to do really successful, amazing things. Um, that at the end of the day, under yeah, <laughs> he under literally. The guys of, I'm sorry, but served on the school's being, board of trustees for four years as president of will, the faculty senate. You will. You are cut. You president of the faculty senate like there's no amount of service you can do that's enough that the college says yes we are in this together we, this we owe you something too right you're old get out and you know like it's really i guess i'm i guess i'm a little less shocked about the age than i am just like the wholesale decimation of some of these programs right and like the absurdity of of it all kind of being under the guise of of kind of revenue right or of of finances and i imagine if we were to look at you know the salaries of upper level administration um coaching staff right there's coaching everywhere you know absolutely it's it's oh yeah no this miami school has sports um it's just really it's 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 hard and it's sad um but also like again lest we be reminded that we will not be we will not be spared in this long war against especially faculty of color. And then, you know, the other thing here too, right? It's like, it's a historically black college university. Um, right, layers. So like, like his, so history like, underfunding, layers. 
History of under-enrollment, history of under-support, and then those become the justification for why the school obviously can't have teachers because it's underfunded. It's like, well, and then the students don't want to come because the school is underfunded and it has no teachers. And so then there's no teachers for this. There's no students for the few teachers who remain to teach and thus further accelerating the sort of justifications for getting rid of them. I'm really interested as we, because this is now a thing we've encountered a couple times over. I'm really interested in this sort of like, the fine print on tenure that honestly we never even mentioned before because it seemed like it would never come up is like, well, they can get rid of tenure professors if they just shut the whole department. And it used to seem like that was impossible until like all the Ivy stopped teaching French altogether one year, right? And they just mm-hmm. fired all those people because like we no longer need romance language departments. And that mm-hmm. seemed like an aberration, but now here's an HBCU getting rid of their English department and also their mathematics department and also their music department and also their sociology department. And it's like, I, I, this, this seems bad. And I wonder, yeah, I mean, it seems bad in this instance, but also, right. I think, as you mentioned, you know, writ large, right. And in what ways will this be emblematic or indicative of what is to come in the future, right? Not only here, but elsewhere. Uh, and I think that part of what has accelerated this, as you mentioned, was the pandemic too, right? I mean, like, that's like not mince words here and say, you know, the, the pandemic is really, you know, in many industries and in higher ed, no less, just killed kind of so many of like revenue sources of, of, funding opportunities, right, that have really kind of translated into what we're seeing here and also, you know, what is to come in in other institutions and other places. Because I think, you know, if it can happen there, I mean, certainly it can happen anywhere. I think it's only a matter of the university rationalizing for itself these cuts, right? Like, I mean, I think it's, certainly. you know, it, it'll, it'll be the rationality of like, well, you know, most people who come to college know how to write anyway, and therefore we don't need people to teach you how to write because you are here, so you should know how to write. And therefore, or, or they'll say, you know, they're leaving your classes, they can't write anyway. So like, it's clearly not, it doesn't <laughs> that, matter. That may be actually, oh, I, look, I'm in the meetings. I know that's what they're going to say. We hear it now. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. So, you know, that's in the kind of southern part of Florida, right? Um, yep. Down in Miami. What I mean, the tip of the wing of the, Florida? Down there. Yes. Um, we've got a few other, you know, things that are going to impact oh, yeah, go for it. this institution, amongst others. So apparently the... Uh, Department of Education is coming down on Florida. Um, recently, the Florida State Legislature passed a bill that would seek out um, the state's public colleges to seek new accreditation. Um, and for those in the world of higher ed, accreditors are those kind of third-party in you know, institutions, organizations that say your your public institution, your private institution meet a certain threshold or standard for, you know, providing a quality education to your fa- right. to your students. 
Um, right. And so this bill. Well, and crucially, is, sorry, is, crucially, yeah, they decide you. that your school is eligible for financial aid. For financial aid. Um, and then can also confer, you know, degrees, right? That, that, right. that when you go out into the world. I mean, you can confer degree, fake degrees. Trump did it. Uh, certainly, certainly. Right, right, right. I mean, yes, layers here, layers here, right? But we're, but we're you getting can't kind of the get general. financial aid. But, but you can't get financial aid, federal financial aid, to be sure, right? And this right. thing just includes, you know, access to federal student loans, Pell Grants, uh, among other, you know, federally qualified uh, programs. And so, so right. this, this, uh, this bill is, it would, would look at Florida's 28 public colleges um, and that are trying to seek out, again, different accreditation, which ultimately, as it's being argued by the Department of Education at the federal level, but also Democrats and those opponents of this bill, is that it would seek out, you know, kind of lower standards, basically, but also that there's not a, a mechanism in place for uh, Florida in particular to allow, right, at the state level to seek out kind of federal or other accreditations uh, measures or accreditation from other, you know, non-accrediting and or other accrediting institutions. So, yeah, the the Department of Education is like, you're going to cut all your funding and or you're, you, that means you're up on the chopping block for whether or not you can get loans, Pell Grants, right? And you know, at that level, that means people like myself, I'm a Pell Grant kid, would, you know, if I was in a public institution in Florida, I could, you know, potentially be ineligible for or not have access to those funds, which again, I needed at that time. I wouldn't be able to go to, I didn't go to a public institution for undergrad, did for grad school, but also like really relied on kind of especially loans to get through it all um don't come from a family of means right and so part of also what's going on here is that in florida seeking out these other accreditations um again loss of federal funding but also it's it's a way to they're not saying it in this article that will post it by the chronicle of education but it's like lowering the bar right seeking out like lower standards. Um, and there's a conversation maybe here to be had about, you know, what that looks like, right? And who gets to set what accreditation looks like or what the measures are. Um, but in the land of Florida, right, it's about doing their own, right? Like seeking out their own, um, which I, I believe right. in this article too, there's also a, you know, potential provision in the bill that could also come after tenure or a post-tenure review, right? So there's there are like layers here, and as we know, uh, both at the state, local levels, but also at the federal level, right? Like these big bills, often are ways for other either amendments or provisions to kind of be slipped in. And so, this is the first of its kind in the United States of a bill to be introduced to kind of seek out this type of alternative accrediting accreditation. Um, from accrediting organizations. So, you know, this is certainly something to keep to, note of. To put a little texture on this, right? Like part of how we ended up here 
was that Florida's governor is a clown buffoon uh, who imagines himself to be some sort of national figure of prominence. Mark my words, he will not be president, but he will make lots and lots of noise and ruin lots of people's day on the way to making mm-hmm. himself rich, pretending he wants to be president. And one of the parts of his fight that he got into last year was around trying to insist that no one who we, we talked about this, right? Trying to insist that no one who works for the university system is allowed to testify against the state's interests. The mm-hmm. only reason that they had to eventually back down from that was because outside accrediting agencies, the bodies that determined that Florida schools are allowed to give degrees and also receive federal grants, told them, no, you can't actually do this or we will strip you of your accreditation. Thus began the conservative movement to reimagine accreditation as just a series of organizations that will tell conservatives that like things like the thing we're going to talk about next, where you abandon or banish certain sort of undesirable topics is itself rigorous education, right? So if you take away the mechanism that makes Florida schools in any way beholden to anything like logic, they become another extension of this kind of Pravda-esque state apparatus that Florida seems invested in building for itself to protect against the reality of how spectacularly horrifying it is. So, like, it's important, right? Like, both in that if they do this, one of the things there, and I think this is probably not an accident, one of the things that's going to happen is that there will be less Pell Grant recipients. There will be less people who are in any way beholden to financial aid. Those people will simply be locked out of higher education in Florida because they won't be able to afford it, and Florida schools won't be accredited to get them that. But who will be able to go is this sort of underclass of psychotic Christian nationalists who want to turn the country into, you know, like the Al-Qaeda. That that has 45's regime and the effects therein remain, right? So part of also how we got to this point is Betsy DeVos, former U.S. U.S. Secretary, whose mandates and rules at the time of her occupation of that office, you know, did actually allow or made it easier for colleges to seek new accrediting agencies, according to one of these articles on chronic higher education, Cynthia Jackson Hammond, who is the president of the Council for Higher Education Accreditation, again, a group that represents accredited institutions, uh, stated to the Chronicle, quote, we are concerned that Florida's legislators may not be aware that going to a new accreditor will take a lot of time and resources, she said. And the cost, quote, end quote, the cost can be voluminous, especially for a small institution, end quote. So in addition to not having access to the federal programs and federal aid, the various aid programs and resources, institutions are also going to be having to foot the bills to seek out these accredited, uh, these new accrediting agencies, right, which ultimately will come out of, you know, everyone's pocket at the end, right? So it's like, it's like legal fees. It's like if you're in a legal, you know, dispute and yep. as an individual you are going to have to like fork over monies for kind of legal and lawyer fees right and so and that has been the case with like conservative a... thinking about schools over the last 20 years what will end up happening is the public schools will receive no support and the private schools will be eligible for any number of state grants to fund this nonsense mm-hmm. so it'll just be a series of you know like fake religious institutions and trump universities all up and down florida Ooh, yeah and you'd and think that, that and, would and be that, the worst of it. Like the, you would think that that Austin. would have to be the end. Right. No, I mean, I think <laughs> which I think, is a website and we'll absolutely have a real campus in Florida when they have a campus. Cause there's uh, no way that Texas will offer them the same tax incentives. Yeah. Although I don't know, they, they bent over backwards for Elon Musk, man, white men, the things they'll do for other white men. 
it's obscene. You'd think this is the end, right? That has to be, there can't be more. Of course, there's more. There's always one more piece because we told you it was happening, but now it's officially happened. Don't say gay. It's headed to the governor's desk. He's going to sign the fuck out of this bill. Uh, so one last piece of what's going on, Florida. Surely you've heard by now that the governor of Florida, that, that, that Florida's passed a bill uh, banning the teaching of controversial topics, but specifically and pointedly sex ed uh, for what they're saying is like only kindergarten through third grade. And the argument they're making, right, is that as as conservatives love to do, we've heard this now. I mean, truly, like Breedly Child's book, like any number of people. The argument is that it's about protecting the children. Like the only person who would want to be talking to a kindergartner about sex or sexuality is some sort of sex pervert. And why should we be talking to six, seven, eight-year-olds about their privates? They don't need to know they have privates. Obviously, all of us are human beings who lived through being six, seven, and eight years old and who understand that we would have benefited tremendously from someone taking us and our bodies seriously and explaining mm -hmm. to us like we were human beings what was going on. But like, that's beside the point. Because the larger point is that this is of a piece with this move to outlaw things that make white conservatives uncomfortable, right? And only white conservatives, because they're the only people whose discomfort matters. Because to be clear, White Christians make my skin crawl. Like I can't, I can't hang out in their spaces. Like if I'm in a room and they start praying, I have to go outside. But like, mm. I'm not allowed to insist on my comfort, but I have to accommodate them all day, every day. While they insist that the mere existence of gay people is a thing they don't want their children who may or may not already fully know they're gay to know about. It's, it's, uh, we're living in the end times, I guess. You know, I don't know if there's another way to put it. Like, I mean, the 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 point and piece here, too, is right. Like this is the complete erasure. Right. Like it's like you don't exist. Um, I saw I think it was on John Oliver recently, too. Right. That, you know, what of the the teachers themselves. Right. Who are requested at the behest of their institutions to share, you know, about their families, right? And what happens, I think there was this, there was this uh, teacher, um, you know, who is gay man, has a partner, and it's like, what happens when he gets asked about, you know, does he have a family? What does his family look like? Is he allowed to discuss it? Is he not allowed to discuss it? Um, and so, you know, equally and additionally, there are like so many kind of legal, things up for interpretation that it seems to me that it's just like a a way for there not to be uh well well a not no dialogue but b right like a a, a complete like an utter legal lawsuit mess right because there's going to be all kinds of interpretations um that at I the guess... you know at the level of like the the of the people in the classroom, right? I mean, again, but to go back to your point, right? Accommodating others is part and parcel of what's happening here. In addition to, I think, I guess, what I'm struggling with, like, obviously, this is mean spirited. Obviously, this is like cruel and designed to lash out at 
like the gays because this is a thing that conservatives do whenever they don't want to answer for the question of like but florida rising sea levels but i guess what i'm struggling with is that like florida rising sea levels rising crime rates like your only real industry is disney and they're exploiting the fuck out of all of you you have the worst coronavirus numbers of anyone we've seen like it's bad Mm -hmm. on every level what is your theory of the problem that the solution is well we just got to make sure that nobody in kindergarten knows about the existence of gay people first of all good luck with that they have the internet and second of all like is this actually the only thing the government does now like you so we're not gonna patch those roads we're just gonna let those bridges keep falling we're just gonna ignore those rising sea levels we have no plan for anything other than making sure that transgender teens know that we want you dead like that's that's where we are that's what that's what half of our political system has become yeah and it's can materialize and manifested in the state arms of like yeah government right or governing um but i they can't keep the fucking lights on in texas but they have time to beat up on transgender teens like i understand scapegoating i genuinely do we've all studied world war ii but like at what point does the exact at what point does the obviousness of the rising sea level matter to the people voting more than whatever their ephemeral abstract notion of hating gayness around their kids. otherness yeah a gayness in particular yeah i mean and black people right immigrants my poor people. god let's not so even, it's like right right right, right 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 but i mean as a as a as a as other exam real examples right um yeah it just seems to me also a distraction too right so i mean i think if i were to deeply if like it's it's like a way for those in power to willfully distract and to rally a base that they know will turn out for things like the don't say gay or the targeting of trans you know teenagers in texas right like that they're like the that it's a scapegoating for a distraction for another purpose right this, that it's about, this is the fight they absolutely absolute, want to be having. Like they feel like they can win a fight about like you hate the trans people. We hate right. like that. I mean, it was George Bush's strategy in two thousand four. Like I don't want to talk about the Iraq War, but did you know those gays are trying to get married? No. Yep. Yeah. Right. And I it mean, worked. It did just like you know. So so I mean <clears throat> you know maybe we've answered our own question or answered the question about the you know well why I guess no even even I haven't even, because like. But in George Bush's time, we were all at least living in the fantasy that global warming wasn't our immediate everyday problem. And we certainly right. weren't as pressingly aware of income inequality. And we certainly didn't have nearly as many like, obvi- I mean, it, the country's on fire and these people are making $4 a year. Like, right. how is this the fight they're fighting? Question. The question. <sighs> just, I just, I'm just... I think that we will lose if we can't recalibrate the conversation away from this, like this disingenuous stupidity. Yeah, whatever this bill is, is is wild. It's stupidly wild. Um, certainly, but yeah, I mean, so that's it's also it's also symptomatic, in part of I think the moment too. Like I think that there are also because the world is on fire. 
it's it seems also like a last ditch effort on the part of the conservative right to also re bolster you know some of the talking points and bullet points that they've had likely for years right since at least what's his name in the the 50s and 60s the architecture of 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 kind of conservative thought in the US i'm like totally blanking and anyway, among uh, amongst Gold others water. right um to yeah rely on right like i mean i think that they're also likely trying to figure out how to control a narrative and i think that this is one of the ways that historically they have right um but it and, and it does not answer the question about like why rally here when we know that in 20 years florida may not actually even be a state because it'll be all underwater right like i i think that the question also points maybe to the psyche of whiteness that i also have no insight into right like uh, we can't know, but also it doesn't make any goddamn sense given given the it's facts. Real. Given real. the facts. Given the so facts. Real. So what a particular and specific kind of trauma they walk around the world not addressing. But that also force so but, but also forcing everyone else to kind of live through, right? Well, that's the thing, is like yeah. if you would just like self-reflect, my friend. Hmm. I know, I know it's scary, but only at first. But what but what happens if you self-reflect and the idea of self-reflection is also couched in an ideal or ideology that I I mean, not to get or to bring religion to this, but only kind of momentarily, because I don't want to get into it into it. But it's like you can ask people to self-reflect, but if like at the end of that reflection, they still believe that they're that their ego or their position is still divine or God-given or it is their mission, their calling, you know, then even asking for self-reflection, I think, seems to me all the more a way for them to double down in who they are, right? Because because their self-reflection involves Jesus, right? Their self-reflection involves like kind of Christian ideal in a way you know, that you're they, 1000% they, right. You're 1000% right. And I will only add that I feel like genuine self-reflection might also call those things into question, which is probably why it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Well, we remain on our uh, friend, Florida. It's, it's just too exhausting for words and we do have to keep it moving. So I'm not mm. going to end on that note. Instead, I want to end with the fun part where I get to ask you, Oh friend, what you reading? Oh, thank you for asking. I am currently on my desk though. I have not had the opportunity to read, but I will this week. Cause it, I've got a little time now with the, with the spring break. Uh, is racial hold on let me pull it up so i get the the full title right racial erotics gay men of color sexual racism and the politics of desire by a one c winter han out of the university of washington press um in the description it says you know sexual desire often understood as personal erotic preference is frequently seen as neutral natural or inevitable Countering these common 
workplace assumptions, racial erotics shows how sexual partnering within communities of gay men is deeply embedded within larger social structures that define whiteness as desirable and normative while othering men of color. In queer erotic economies, this othering may take the form of sexual rejection or fetishization of men of color, but C. Winter Hahn argues that the real danger of sexual racism is that it creates a hierarchy of racial worth that extends outside of erotic encounters into the everyday lives of gay men of color. In this way, sexual racism perpetuates a larger project of racial erasing that equates gayness with whiteness to secure acceptance for white, for gay white men at the expense of queers of color. I think that this is an argument that has been you know, made, especially amongst our women of color feminist and third world feminist of yesteryear, specifically out of kind of the bridge moment um, and has been articulated less maybe amongst the gay men or articulated in this way. So I'm excited to kind of jump into this because I am also making similar arguments in my own work. And so I'm reading this particular, want to read and kind of jump into this book because it you know, will offer me maybe some more framework for thinking about, I think what I'm also attempting to articulate as far as what he, what this author is calling racial erotics, right? Because I'm talking about sex and prep and, you know, what are the kind of embedded and encoded meanings that get transferred and transmuted that I think, you know, this could potentially give me some insight into or further insight into the conversation. So that's what I'm reading. What about you, friend? What you reading? That looks, I, I, this looks really fascinating. Um, and I'm realizing, I think I actually have read uh, this first book, Geisha of a Different Kind, Race and Sexuality Engage in America, which is an NYU press book. And so I actually do think I'm familiar with this author and I'm even more compelled. Um, so yeah, that looks cool. I, as you know, I am mired in the writing of a thing that will eat me alive or whatever, but it is in, in my quest to understand everything I can possibly learn about the history of children's and young adult literature publishing, uh, I've been scouring old issues of Publishers Weekly, which is a trip. Man, it's it's fun and weird. Trade magazines are insane, and I should someone should do more work with them. Me, whatever. Uh, but so I've, I found a book that is specifically about children's publishing and Black Britain, 1965 to 2015, uh, Karen Sands O'Connors. And it is not the kind of book I typically go for because it's very like it is a uh, publishing history, which is not a thing I tend to do a ton of. And it's very like detail oriented. It's very like this is the it's analytic data heavy, right? Like this is the number of publishers in this era at this time publishing this number of books. Uh, and so typically like a little more math than I like in my criticism, but it is actually like a really helpful way of making sense out of the landscape um, and thinking through what what are the ways in which the publishing industry in many ways is the thing that creates young adult literature? Uh, and so like watching that and watching it happen sort of in the British context is I think helpful just as a model for how that scholarship can be done. Uh, so, you know, it's good. I like it a lot. I, it's, I'm definitely real, real, real far down the rabbit hole. So it's like, it's a recommendation if you really care about this topic or this type of research. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, it is real, real deep off the deep end. But I'm having fun hoping to be done with this sample chapter that this is a part of. Like, I don't know why I'm calling it a sample. It's a sample for me. Helping to be done with this chapter that it's a part mm -hmm. of. Uh, like, by the end of the month, I said to myself last month. Wow. 
Yeah, no, thank you for sharing. Um, sometimes, sometimes it's really good to get like that, you know, that deep analytical, you know, someone is going in there and they've got their, they've got their, um, spreadsheet. They've got their this, spreadsheet, this spreadsheet exactly. That, that, yes, yeah. and 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 sometimes, and, and it's so, um, well, sometimes it's obvious to me, right? Like you can even see where like they've outlined the the, the paragraphs or the chapters yeah. and the paragraphs are just yeah. like this that you know, this, this was what I found first, second, and sometimes, as boring as that may be to some, I actually really enjoy. I'm starting to really enjoy some of those. Um, some of those texts um Certainly. so that's so that's cool that it, i mean it's also of use value to you for you know your own writing at this moment and so yay that thank you for sharing yeah that's the last question for sure please friend what you thinking uh i feel like i've been thinking about this a lot it will be a lot going forward tis the season it's officially as you mentioned like spring well it snowed here yesterday so it's mm -hmm. we're inching towards spring but it is supposed to get and stay in the 60s soon uh and i mm. finally got around to purchasing a raised bed uh for gardening purposes uh so Ooh. it's basically just a metal four by four tube into which i will place lots of dirt uh and i realized that i am in over my head so now i have a metal tube in my backyard and i have to figure out how to get dirt into said backyard with you know no car and no access to the backyard except through the front door uh, so i'll be moving 179 gallons of dirt through my apartment into the backyard see how this goes wow, uh yeah. to begin planting things it's gonna be i'm excited i'm overwhelmed it'll be fun yay that sounds like a lot of fun we love uh we love gardening i do i i'm learning to love it um right awesome. i mean it's it's rewarding but also man yeah i guess it's a lot of work when you can't just like put seeds into the ground <laughs> I, <laughs> when you have to start with what is the ground it's it becomes a bigger project right but hey right. i'm excited for the work friend what are you thinking about Ooh, good question honestly i'm just thinking i'm in kind of enveloped by my chapter I had a workshop on this particular chapter last week in the department, which went really, really well. I had a lot of really great feedback and people who engaged my work so thoughtfully. And now it's just a matter of kind of, you know, taking all that feedback and applying it. And so I've really been thinking about the overall structure of my book, but also of this particular chapter and how it might be revised. Um, which I think the bigger thought for me these days is, you know, kind of what what book do I want in the world, but also what kind of a scholar do I want to also be, you know, in terms of am I just going to reproduce the jargon or do I really want my my pieces to translate across multiple and varied audiences? And I think I'm the latter. But that's much harder in practice. And so I'm just thinking about, you know, communication. <laughs> I guess that's my way of saying, yeah, like how, how do I communicate? Um, <laughs> and how do I communicate in ways that sometimes I don't even realize that I'm reproducing the jargony, you know, whatever. 
it's hard. It's hard, but that's what I'm thinking about. It's it truly it is hard. Heard it is an ongoing struggle, really. I mean, I think, yeah, everybody thinks they want to write the thing that speaks to multiple audiences, but then the reality is that multiple audiences don't read the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, you have to figure out what, yeah, what, who do you want to be and what do you want to sound like while also making sure you're doing so in a way that's disciplinarily legible enough, right? And so, yeah, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Heard. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. But I think it's time. I think it's now time for me to go out and enjoy a little bit of this sun since I've got it for a little bit because it's likely going to get uh, cold again. again so. so jealous, but that's okay because it's not my spring break. So it's time for me to <laughs> return to tending my other garden, my email garden. Yay! It never ends. It never ends. Uh, um, friend, it is always a pleasure. Such a pleasure. I love you so much, James. Thank you for love all you your too. insight. Appreciate you. Of course. And talk to you soon. Talk soon. Bye.